92.3 FM W222CD Louisville and 106.9 WVEZ FM HD2 St. Matthews Louisville, a pure radio station. Hello, welcome to the Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my latest project, The Word Diet, reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but the project is aimed at novices and those who have struggled to read the Bible in the past. More information is available about the project and the book at thoroughlyequipped.org. We're starting with the book of Revelation, which is a challenging book, a great book. It is understandable if you get a little bit of help, uh, especially, and really applicable. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. Please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Last week, we started into our two-week introduction to Revelation 6 and following, and we talked about apocalyptic as a literature style, as a genre, and the challenges uh, of of interpreting it, especially for us moderns. Uh, We also talked about prophecy and uh, its role in Scripture, that prophecy is both foretelling the future and forthtelling the present, and uh, its focus on truth and talking about truth in a forceful manner. And then we talked about the overlap between prophecy and apocalyptic. We compared and contrasted them. The book of Revelation is a combination of apocalyptic, uh, prophetic. Uh, It's an epistle, it's a poem, etc., as we talked about in the opening. And then we close by talking about the purpose of prophecy, right? That if it's a book of prophecy, what does God use prophecy to do? And we talked about three points there. It's for theology, a better understanding of who God is. It's for our earthly perspective and our practice, right? If we read the book of Revelation, it's prophetic elements, and it doesn't improve our theology, improve our perspective, improve our practice, then we're just wasting our time. Last week's episode is available on Spotify, and so I encourage you to check out uh, The Word Diet on Spotify to pick up past shows, but especially last week's show if you missed it. Today we're going to talk about uh, the four views of Revelation 6 and following, and we're going to talk through three key terms in that debate, in the debate among the four views. We're going to talk about the dangers of calendarizing, trying to put specific dates and events onto the book of Revelation, And we'll conclude with what we do know, right? Uh, Independent of the four views, independent of the debates over various terms, independent of questions about how to apply stuff, there are some key principles we know, and that's what we'll conclude with. So, uh, in addition to uh, concrete conclusions that we have from the scriptures, uh, the early part of today uh, has quite a bit of controversy. So, Lord, be with us today. Uh, Help me to speak clearly. If there's any chaff that I share today, please let it be blown away. Uh, To the extent that there's wheat, I pray that it would bear much fruit. We pray for your wisdom. We pray for uh, courage as we live our day-to-day lives. And we thank you for the book of Revelation. In the name of Jesus, amen. 
please pray for the Pure Radio Network and this show. We'll take a break before we get rolling. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Dependable, trustworthy, Pure Radio at 92.3 FM and 106.9 FM HD2. Welcome back to The Word Diet. This week we're finishing our introduction to Revelation 6 through 20. Revelation 1 through 5 is really pretty easy. Revelation 1 through 3 is, uh, after the introduction, is an epistle. Pretty easy to read. Revelation 4 and 5 describes worship in terms that are uh, awesome and a little challenging to read, but, but not that rough. But once we get to 6, it's a different game. 21 and 22 won't be that rough either. Again, it gets fantastic, but it's describing heaven, and uh, that's easier sledding. But 6 through 20 is a handful. And in particular, we have to wrestle with the extent to which the book of Revelation is prophetic. These chapters in particular, Revelation 6 through 20, are they prophetic? How much? Especially of the foretelling sort, right? Uh, Forthtelling the truth, there's tons of that in Revelation, but foretelling future events. How much of that's going on? And to the extent that's the case, how much of those prophecies have already been fulfilled? So that leads to four basic views of Revelation. And on this topic, I strongly recommend Steve Gregg's book on the four views of Revelation for those who want uh, greater study on this. Uh, Gregg's book has been a tremendous um, help to me in understanding these views, and I'll do what I can to quickly summarize those views for you. The first view is called symbolic or idealist, and it's defined as a symbolic portrayal of the kingdom of God versus the powers of evil. And those who hold this view see Revelation as having sporadic and continuous fulfillment throughout history. It's been popular over time throughout church history and pretty consistent. And the advantage of it is that it recognizes the value and place of symbolism within the genre of apocalyptic. It's broad and flexible enough to allow deep insight into the past and the future. And it's also safe in terms of avoiding interpretation mistakes like the ones we'll talk about shortly. In this way, it's ironically the most liberal approach because it tends to be vague but it's also the most conservative approach. You're not going to make many mistakes, if any, with this approach. And that's part of the disadvantage, right? That it's so flexible, so vague, that one can reduce the value and the power of the book. And we know from Revelation 1.1 that the book claims to be predictive. So uh, it often is, and I think it should be, and will be, as I present it, will be merged with the other three views in varying degrees. So I'm not uh, a symbolist uh, or symbolicist or whatever you would call that on Revelation, uh, but I think uh, it has some insights for us, and, and I'll try to bring those in as we can. The second view is historicist, and they see the book of Revelation as prophetic about all of church history, and they see it as in the process of being fulfilled. Now, there are two options here. One is general and broad. And the second is specific and chronological. So the first sees uh, Revelation describing history in universal terms, more on the symbolic side. Others see it in very specific terms, right? They're look- these are the ones who are looking for specific historical events. We've actually talked about the, the, 
the uh, specific historical view at the end of Revelation 2 and 3 when we noted that uh, some people view the seven letters as not just epistles to seven individual churches, but also as a chronological representation of periods in church history. And so if you're uh, interested in that, uh, you can shoot me a message on Facebook. I can send you some details, or you can go back to uh, our wrap-up of Revelation 2 and 3. Now, over time, this has been a, also been a popular view. Uh, certainly the general universal historical view has been significant from the beginning. And the specific chronological view has gained strength over time, but it has cycled quite a bit. It was very popular with the Reformation. And as you might imagine, if you're familiar with Revelation, they were imagining the Catholic Church as the beast and the Pope as the Antichrist. Uh, that particular view is really rare today, and it points to one of the challenges of specific historicist views, is that when you get specific, you might be wrong. So um, specific has uh, interesting stuff. Again, we'll bring it up as we go. The general universal historical stuff is more vague, and uh, but it's also not as likely to be wrong. So interesting views in uh, both cases, and as we did with symbolic, uh, we'll, we'll try to bring up the historical views, uh, both the general and the specific, as we go. The advantage of this historical views is that, you know, if, if you're going with a general historical view, it's always right, right? The names and the events may change, but rebellion versus God has not. And so in that sense, Revelation is always true. Uh, Frederica Murphy says the eternity in Revelation becomes always when it is reflected back into history. Uh, you can read this at any point in time in church history, and it's going to be applicable. Uh, if you're going with the specific historicist view, it looks pretty good, especially if you're looking backwards, because you're making the text fit the data. And that's a, a common problem uh, for those who play with data, right, is that it's one thing to make your theory fit data that's already happened. It's another thing for it to be predictive in the future. The disadvantages, well, you know, the generals I've mentioned can be too vague. And so it tends to be something that the more liberal folks take. But again, it's in a way the most conservative view because you're not likely to make any mistakes. If you make the obvious observation that this describes uh, history uh, and it generally fits history, then you're not going to be wrong. The specific historical views, again, you got to be careful when you're identifying the specifics. It requires conjecture and uh, the adherents, as you might imagine, disagree on the specifics. Another weakness is that it tends to focus on European and American history. And uh, this is one of a few views of Revelation that tend to have a Western mindset and miss the fact that this is a big, beautiful world that God has created with believers all over the globe. I like what Greg says about uh, this in as he finishes um, his general critique of the view, he says each position seems hopelessly subjective to critics who champion alternative positions, right? So if you're a specific historic, historicist view and you have a certain take on the way this is specifically unfolding, you look at others who are doing likewise with their theories and you think, ah, I don't think so. So the first two views are symbolic and historicist. Uh, both tend to be on the vague side when the specific historicists get rolling uh, it has the advantage of being specific, but the disadvantage of being specific if you're wrong. That takes us then to the other two 
uh, views, which are more specific as well. The first is what's called preterism. And the word preterism starts with the prefix pre, and it's describing things, historical events that are contemporary to John's day. It sees an early fulfillment to many or most of the, of the book of Revelation. It's the most literal view, and it holds that many or all of its prophecies have been fulfilled. Now, there are two types of preterists. There are the full preterists, uh, those who believe that Revelation ends with the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and they're seeing Revelation 22 as a literal New Jerusalem. Uh, but uh, some of its adherents deny the second coming, and that's completely unacceptable, as we'll get to later. And so uh, full preterism is a tougher haul um, beyond the scope of this discussion. So when I talk about preterism, I'm really assuming partial preterism. And it's that the first half of the book is on Jerusalem and the temple falling in 70 AD. And the second half is on the overthrow of the Roman Empire and the second coming of Christ. Preterism usually assumes an early date for Revelation. Uh, I think this makes sense if you think about it, right? If the fall of Jerusalem and uh, the, the temple uh, are, are what's being described here then and, and being prophesied, then the book of Revelation has to be written before 70 AD. So uh, that view sees the events uh, prophesied uh, and the book being written before 70 AD in the emperorship of Nero. The later date folks uh, usually take a mid-90s date, and they see it in the rule of Domitian. As for the popularity of this view, it probably goes back to the beginning, but we can only document it back to the 6th century, which is uh, ironic and troubling if, uh, if it's true. If we really can't, uh, can't date it back to the very beginning, that's when you would expect the view to be most powerful. Uh, today, it has a, a modest following, but it's been growing. Uh, if you, the most popular proponent of it today is Hank Hanegraaff, the uh, Bible Answer Man, who has a radio show and a, a neat ministry. Uh, really, the story of his evolution on, on these matters is interesting. Uh, he's the Bible Answer Man, after all, and people call him to get answers. And so, as you might imagine, people for years were calling him saying, Hey, Hank, what do you think about Revelation? And he would always defer and just say, well, it's, it's complicated. And that's interesting because usually he's very strong in his views, right? He studied stuff and he's somewhere between strong and dogmatic. But on Revelation, I always appreciated that he was reticent to dig into his views. He, he knew that he didn't know. And he also recognized the power that he had, right? That if Hank says something, then it has a lot of weight. And so I really appreciate his deference. But at one point he got... I guess, convicted that that wasn't enough. And he said, you know, I'm going to look at this for a year, I think was the time frame he gave, and then I'll get back to you. And then after a year, he was not sure he had an answer. And he said, okay, I need six more months or whatever the time frame was. But eventually he did come to conclusions and it turned into a book called The Apocalypse Code. And uh, if you're reading widely on the book of Revelation, I definitely re recommend that. But it's a good intro to preterism. But the bottom line is that Hanegraaff, I don't know if he would label himself as a preterist, but he certainly has sympathies for that view. So if you're looking for something 
uh, recent from a, a popular author. Hannah Graf's book uh, is very helpful there. But I also appreciate Hannah Graf's story that he uh, is just very careful with his views on this complex topic. The advantage of preterism or an advantage is that it's the only view that does not require finesse in interpreting words like soon that are used in Revelation. We'll talk more about that later today. And that way it's more literal than the futurist view, which is probably the most popular view and the view I'll talk about after the break. But it's actually more literal than futurists. And it's funny because futurists claim to be literal, but preterist is clearly more literal than the futurist view. It's the most sensitive to the context, and it can find some inspiration uh, as, as the early readers. And if you think about how we read the rest of Scripture, we typically read it as first being written to people of that time. And so the preterist view is certainly consistent with that. One of the downsides of futurist, right, is that it had little or no relevance to John's contemporary audience and is only or mostly applicable to some audience in the future. The preterist view also has parallels to key passages passages in the Gospels like Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 17 and 21, and John's expanded version of the Mount of Olives discourse. For example, we look at Matthew 24, 1 through 3. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And there's debate on how much of Matthew 24, 25 is about the temple and how much is later. But you can see where the preterists uh, go here, right? Uh, Clearly, the early part of Matthew 24 is a reference to 70 AD. And the preterists take that further uh, in reading that passage. They take the most literal reading of that passage. Now, the disadvantages are they could be wrong on the early date for Revelation and that this view can tend to forget that biblical prophecy often has more than one application. One of the outs that we have in reading Revelation is to say, well, yeah, it could be fulfillment of prophecy early, but it also might be fulfillment of prophecy in the future as well, right? The Bible often has prophecies that are multiple in nature. All right, we're going to take a break at this point. Uh, Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry within God's kingdom. Spread the word about Pure Radio and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Responsible, credible, Pure Radio, 92.3 FM and 106.9 FM HD2. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in the middle of an introduction to Revelation 6 and following. And in particular, uh, last segment, we were in the middle of a discussion of the four views of Revelation 6 and following. Uh, The four primary views include uh, a symbolic reading, uh, more historical readings, whether general history or looking for specific historical events. And just before the break, I finished describing preterism, which sees a lot of Revelation as fulfilling uh, or being fulfilled in the events of 70 AD, with the the, uh, sacking of the temple and of Jerusalem. The fourth view is futurism, the futurist. Uh, And this sees the book of Revelation as future for John, 
and perhaps or probably for us as well, right? This is speaking of events in the very end of time, capital E, capital T. And if that's the case, Revelation is primarily, at least after chapter 4, a book of foretelling prophecy on the folding, unfolding of specific historical events culminating in the end of the world. Typically, this assumes a late date for, for Revelation. If not, it would be uncomfortable because its prophecies would otherwise point much more so to the temple in 70 AD. So when you hear someone talking about a late date for Revelation, uh, it's always connected to futurism. Uh, an early date is usually connected to preterism, right? Seeing the events in light of the temple and Jerusalem being sacked in 70 AD. Uh, it's had popularity over time. It's probably the most popular one today, especially in evangelical circles, along with uh, a view called premillennialism. That's in Revelation 20, so we won't get there for uh, a long time now. It's probably faded a bit. I mean, this was a very hot view 10 to 15 years ago, along with premillennialism. Uh, in particular, think about the Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins Left Behind series. And before that, if, uh, 20, 30 years before that, you had Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth. Now, there are some uh, denominations that are opposed, uh, some deeply opposed to this view, but at least in evangelical circles, this is probably uh, easily the most dominant uh, these days. The advantage of futurism is it keeps you on your toes, and it is consistent with God's past general use of prophecy to awaken people, right, to revival, repentance, and the like. Big disadvantage, and I alluded to this earlier, is it tends to diminish the contemporary context. If the futurists are right, then the people who initially received John's revelation would have had no sense of you know, what, what this was referring to. They could have only read it in the most vague uh, terms, and that this is read simply as a, a love letter, uh, an information letter to those in the very, very far future. It makes the book largely irrelevant, right, to those who receive the letter. And that's possible, but it's strange, right, because that's not how we read the rest of Scripture. We start with the view that it was most relevant to the people receiving it, and then we're trying to glean lessons from it. A second disadvantage is that futurism is usually uh, defined by a relatively wooden hermeneutic. Hermeneutic's a fancy word that just means how to interpret the Bible, but it's a wooden hermeneutic. It's It uh, tends to read things uh, on the literal side. It tends to underestimate uh, the symbolic uh, nature of Revelation. And often the, the hermeneutic is inconsistent as well. For example, they usually claim to have the most literal reading, but when you press on it, again, the preterists are the most literal here. And when you look into the details of the futurist uh, views, usually it's literal until it's not. It becomes conveniently non-literal and often in a way that's not explained at all. And so I think that's a, a really troubling feature uh, if you're uh, a futurist. It can be gotten around, and I'm not dismissing it, but uh, the bragging about literal readings of Revelation is quite oversold. So what do we do with all this? The first thing is that... <laughs> You know, there's limitations in all four of these views, and it's certainly not a test of orthodoxy, right? There's not going to be a test when you get to heaven and, you know, if you don't hold this view, then get out of here, right? That's, that's not the way this is going to go. Uh, we shouldn't use it as a test of orthodoxy in our churches. Second, it should promote a more humble and 
uh, empathetic approach to hermeneutics in Revelation. The fact that there are four views, right? Four views within orthodoxy. The, the fact that the views have uh, increased and decreased in popularity over time, all that should lead to humility and empathy for those who have different views. It also points us to a a wider and more liberal approach to Revelation. If all you've read is one of these views, then I'd encourage you, if you really care, I'd encourage you to read one of the other views. It's interesting. Uh, and it'll, it'll give you humility and empathy for those who have different views. Um, Steve Gregg uh, provides a testimony of how easy Revelation was for him to teach until he started reading the other views. <laughs> and then he finds them compelling, and then it gets gets mushy from there. You know, it's one thing to read someone making the case for their view when they get to cherry pick scriptures. It's another to, uh, you know, see people uh, have those views tested, to read other people with other views who are also making similar cases. One of the beauty of Greg's, um, Steve Gregg's book is that he takes you through every verse in Revelation and requires, forces each view to speak to all of the verses, not just the ones that help them make their case most easily. So there's value in all four of the views. And at the least, it helps us understand how Revelation has been seen within Christian history. I think this also points to the present applicability of the book, to just wrestle with, is the book of Revelation primarily for us, or was it for the initial audience? Lowry says here, one approach consigned Revelation to the past, while the other used it, used it to tell us the future. The book either meant net, virtually nothing to me, or everything to me. And we're going to you know, split the difference there. Let's talk about what it might have meant to the readers and what it meant for the, the sacking of Jerusalem. What does it mean for all Christian history? And what might it mean for the future? And this takes us to the, the point of Revelation in the first place, right? Why are we reading this? Uh, we're not reading it to learn about the Antichrist or, hey, what's 666 mean? All of it points to God's sovereignty, God's throne, the worthiness of the Lamb, the call for us to have patient endurance and to be ready for the coming of Christ. If you're not doing those things as you look at Revelation, you're clearly misguided. That's the purpose of Revelation. That's the purpose of God's revelation through the rest of Scripture. So let's make sure we're focusing on the majors, and we'll look at the minors, but let's not focus and obsess on the minors. So our approach will be, look, the symbolic has obvious relevance, so we will talk about the symbolic stuff. The general historical view has obvious usefulness, right? There's always evil in the world. God is always working in the world. So we'll make those applications. It takes more work to do the specific historical view, the futurist and the preterist, but that work is worth it as well. It is more speculative, so we'll be more careful there. Uh, but it's worth it looking really at all, uh, all of these views. And whatever you do, whatever you do as you're listening to me, as you read and study Revelation on your own, make sure you absorb its message of hope and its focus on God's sovereignty and its love for you and all mankind. So as we're discussing and debating these views, it turns out there's three key concepts that are, are at the heart of the debate and how to interpret those things. The first is a word about place, the geographical scope of the book of Revelation. The, the word that's used here is, uh, is used to describe the whole world, and it can be translated as earth or land, 
uh, or also people, as in all people. What does it mean, though? Does it mean universal, like the entire earth? I mean, that's literally what it says, right? The whole world. But if you read other uses of the word, it clearly uh, is applicable sometimes to a narrower scope, that the whole world or the whole land is used to refer to Israel or the Roman Empire. The symbolic and futurist views tend to take it as universal, right? Symbolic, they're going to tend to see it as broad and applicable. The futurists usually see it in the future, and so they see it as literally the whole world coming under judgment. If you look at the historicist and preterist views, right, they're going to tend to look at it narrower, that it's referring to specific historical events uh, with respect to Israel or the Roman Empire, and so they view that term um, as uh, not as referring more figuratively to the land of that time or the land that the prophecy is speaking of. Related to the debate about place is a debate about people and the terms used there. When we talk about the people of God, Scripture goes back and forth to seeing that as Jewish or uh, the church. And so one of the debates also is, is the church replacing Jewish, uh, the, the Jews in the Old Testament, uh, Galatians 6.16 talks about Israel as the people of, uh, as the church of God. And so there's this connection of the two. But to what extent are, uh, are the Jews still part of the plan going forward? Are they absorbed into the church? Is the church replacing uh, the Jews of the Old Testament and so on? And so there's, you know, we're not going to solve any of that here, but I want to let you know that there are different views here, right, on how to read uh, the place and the people references of the book of Revelation. The other two terms refer to timing, and that's a big old kettle of fish, so we're going to take a break before we get there. If you're on Facebook, please like Pure Radio and friend me there. Uh, The podcasts for this are available on Facebook, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can interact with me on my Facebook with questions and comments. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in a minute. Pure Radio, reaching all of Kentuckiana with the pure gospel of Jesus. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We opened the show by talking about the four views on Revelation 6 and following, and we then moved into a discussion on the debate about various terms of interest and importance in those views. Before the break, we talked about place and people, the extent, what does the whole world mean? What do the people of God mean? And now we move to, I think, an easier topic and really interesting about the timing of these things. So the second one here is the coming of the Lord and the last days. What do those mean? So the former is often taken to be only literal at the end of time, the coming of the Lord, right? That refers to Jesus coming back, but it has other meanings. The same word has other meanings in the scriptures. Uh, especially in John's writing, it turns out. Remember Revelation 3.20? Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Or consider John 14, verses 16 through 18, and then verse 23. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. 
So the coming of the Lord, right, is certainly going to be the second coming, no denying that. But there's also this this use that's more spiritual and clearly refers to a much earlier time, right? The time of Pentecost or in Revelation 3.20, there's this universal opportunity for us, for us to open the door and let God come in and eat with us and he uh, and us with him. The other thing about this phrase is that it's used a lot in the Old Testament to describe God's temporal judgments of all kinds. Uh, sometimes the language is uh, attached that he's coming in the clouds. But the idea that God comes to deliver judgment is not simply an end of time sort of reference. Isaiah 19.1, a prophecy against Egypt. See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him and the hearts of the Egyptians melt with fear. Psalm 104.3 uh, he lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. In the seven letters of Revelation 2 and 3, three times it talks about God coming uh, in this sense of judgment. And it's not simply referring to the end of time, right? That God comes in judgment uh, in all sorts of times. So it's not merely the end of time. That's not to dismiss that interpretation, but it is to say that God comes to earth many times. Every time he judges, that's the language that's used. As for the last days, the most clear reference in the scriptures to this is that the last days are between Christ's first and second coming, what we call the church age. Acts 2, 14 through 17, then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you, listen carefully to what I say. And then verse 17, he says, in the last days, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will see dreams. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit, that's Pentecost. So the last days defined biblically are with Pentecost. First Peter 1.20, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. That's the coming of Christ. That's what the last days are referring to biblically. First Timothy 4.1, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So it's fine to see the last days, kind of capital L, capital D, as the end of time, capital E, capital T, that's fine. But don't miss that the last days, biblically, start with the ministry of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit. I think broadly, we just miss this. We don't understand the importance of the Holy Spirit broadly. We don't understand the importance of Pentecost. John 16, 7, Christ himself says, but very truly I tell you, it's for your own good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's for our good that Christ went away so the Spirit would come. And we just don't understand that. We don't understand the Spirit-filled life. It's not preached on often enough in our church. It's not understood well enough. But the Spirit is key. And the Spirit is key to the last days, to the end times, right? So again, there is a end of time coming, capital E, capital T. But don't miss what the Bible says about the last days, the end of time 
the end times, right, which starts biblically with the ministry of Jesus and Pentecost. This relates to another popular phrase that you'll hear people talk about, the already and the not yet of God's kingdom. And these are intention. God's kingdom is already, but God's kingdom is not yet. And it's important to hold on to these. A lot of times people act as if God's kingdom is you know, nothing or virtually nothing here, aside from attending church, I suppose. Uh, and it'll be fully revealed in the end, right? That it was almost zero and then it's fully revealed. And that's not an accurate biblical view. God's kingdom is already, it's not full. It's, there is a not yet piece, but to have both of those. Eugene Peterson says, many people think what is written in the Bible mostly has to do with getting people into heaven, getting them right with God, saving their eternal souls. It does have to do with that, of course, but not mostly. It is equally concerned with living on this earth, living well, living in robust sanity. In our scriptures, heaven is not the primary concern to which earth is a tag-along afterthought. On earth as it is in heaven is Jesus' prayer, Matthew 6.10. And so it's important for us to catch this. And so, yes, the end of time is important. The end times are important as well, though, right? And the end times began with the ministry of Christ and Pentecost. Don't underestimate that. The last word or phrase with uh, timing is phrases like soon, come quickly, this generation. You know, what do we do with those? Again, if you read these phrases literally, that's how you end up preterist, right? Because when, when he says soon coming quickly this generation, it means soon coming quickly this generation. The futurists use finesse here, right? They're like, well, soon doesn't mean soon. It means um, it means when things happen, they'll happen quickly. And that's, that's okay, but there's a little bit of finesse there, right? Um, you know, coming quickly. What, what does that mean? So there's the, the most literal interpretation, which takes you to preterism. And then there's the capacity to go non-literal, which is fine, and use some finesse and end up uh, in the futurist camp. A lot of this connects to what, what you do with Matthew 24 and 25. And that's a very difficult debate uh, that's been debated for a long time. We're not going to settle that here. But just to point you to that passage, if you read that on your own and you have in mind the possibility of both preterism and futurism, you can see where that would be the case. Here's what Bernard Ehlers says about this. He's a preterist uh, on the idea that the time is soon or short. He says the expectation was present in the church during almost every decade from AD 30 until the end of the century. Yet throughout this period, writers continued to state the expectation of Christ's soon return and readers continued to accept it without ever seeing an apparent difficulty in the fact that their predecessors had been stating the same thing, right? And the easiest way around this is to see the language of God coming, Christ coming in judgment as fulfilled in 70 AD. It allows you to take soon coming quickly this generation literally, and it uh, is certainly allowed by the idea that when God comes in judgment, it's not simply for the end of time, right? That occurs throughout history. Now, if you're not going to take the preterist view, that's fine. Uh, you just need a little bit of finesse, right? You have to argue that the events will take place quickly when they happen. Uh, and Or it has to be some paraphrase that reflects continued uncertainty of a specific time, but certainty of a time. You might think of it as translating it for some, something like, for all we know, the time is short. So finesse is required there. Finesse is okay, but uh, let's acknowledge it 
uh, if we're going to diminish the preterist view, let's acknowledge that we're reading the scripture in a less literal manner and that we're using finesse to interpret uh, those phrases in the scriptures. I just turned the page in my notes, and there's one more, right, that soon can be interpreted as relative to eternity. To God, a day is like a thousand years, and even for us, looking back will seem like nothing at all. In contrast to all God has accomplished to bring his plan to completion, the old covenant, Christ, the spirit, the, the, the church, the next step will be soon in comparison. Joel Bells puts it this way, Christ is the fulcrum of history, and in one sense, the centuries after him are all end times. So again, a, an eminently reasonable view, uh, but one that uh, has to read things a bit less literally and with a bit of finesse. Now, a big problem with specific historicist views and especially futurist interpretation is that it can easily degenerate into what might be called playing the dating game or calendarizing, right? Trying to put the calendar up against Revelation. Steve Gregg calls it newspaper exegesis. Every generation of futuristic interpreters for the last 150 years or longer has been able to find in Revelation a description of their own times. And this is a tough one because Christ discussed signs of the times, and that implies some need for us to investigate it. But there's also some balance because we know we're likely to misread the signs. And we also know that Christ warns us against taking this too far. So we don't want to ignore the signs. We don't want to ignore this possibility, but we also don't want to obsess on it as we go. It kind of reminds me of death, right? You want to think about your own death, but not too much. And so maybe that's the kind of balance we're looking for here. We should eagerly anticipate, but patiently wait for Christ. And there's a tension there that we need to try to observe. Talking about the problems of calendarizing is a larger topic. So we need to take a break at this point, and then we'll come back. Uh, please be, consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of the ministry. Please spread the word about the Pure Radio Network and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Become a P3 partner. P3 partners are Pure Radio listeners who pray for Pure Radio each day, provide financial support to our programmers, promote Pure Radio by telling others about us and sharing us on Facebook. Ready to get started? Go to pureradio.org and click on the P3 Partners button and register. P3 partners have privileges. Get books, DVDs, CDs, devotional materials, invitation-only access to Pure Radio events, and other experience opportunities only available to P3 partners. Pray, provide, and promote Pure Radio. Become a P3 partner today. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in our last segment of uh, two shows where we've been talking about uh, Revelation 6 and following uh, trying to introduce uh, the key concepts, and there's so much to talk about. So uh, I've done my best to get it all in in two shows. Uh, but if you haven't caught this, go back and uh, catch this episode. And if you missed the one before that, you can catch it on Spotify under the word diet. We left off talking about uh, the dating game and calendarizing and newspaper exegesis, right, where you're looking at the newspaper and trying to figure out where uh, all the dates and places work with the Bible and with Revelation. And so this is a problem for the futurist, right? That they have a tendency to see things into the future and they're looking to put dates and times with stuff and, and often it doesn't go very well. So what are some of the problems with this general approach? Well, Christ said, 
we can know in general, but we can't know specifically. Matthew 24, 33, even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Verse 36, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And of course, that could apply to the precise uh, dating of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, but it certainly applies to the events of the capital E, capital T, end times as well, right? We're encouraged to look and, and try to interpret the signs, but we can't possibly know. So we've got to keep that in balance. Acts 1, 6 through 8, very similar. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Which turns out to be a really dumb question for a lot of reasons, but that's a topic for a different day, perhaps. Uh, verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So taken to an extreme, we know that the dating game violates Christ's clear teachings on the subject. Anyone who says, I know when, reveals himself to be a false prophet, by definition, by what Christ has said. And if we don't believe Christ on this, why would we believe in his return at all? So we can't go there. Here's another problem. Past calendarizers have been 100% wrong and thought they'd be right. Mark Knoll describes this as Murphy's Armageddon observation, kind of like Murphy's Law. Those who don't learn from the past are condemned to write end-time books. Here's another observation from history that the people that have been wrong on this often set out and form their own cults. Uh, so that's, again, a longer discussion, but uh, it's pretty easy to read in the vague uh, promises of Scripture, for example, the rumors of wars, and then read some specifics into that, and then suddenly you've got date, time, and place. And But the problem is those those vague uh, promises, for example, of rumors of war, they're always happening. So how can you use that to put together your calendar? The calendarizing hurts our reputation and credibility with outsiders. And then for insiders, it causes trouble. It feeds disappointment from inappropriate but unmet expectations. It can damage the faith, my faith or the faith of others. It can lead to harmful short-run and long-run personal decisions. Think about First and Second Thessalonians, right, where they were expecting the coming of Christ, the end of time, in their day, and they weren't working like they should. It can also lead to freaking out rather than faith. I like what Peter Lightheart says about this. He says, when Jesus' disciples ask him for signs of the end, Jesus does an odd thing. He spends a long paragraph telling them all the events that are not signs of the end. Even the subtle doctor of souls, Jesus, knows what he is doing. Ever the subtle doctor of souls, Jesus knows what he's doing. When the world becomes chaotic and frightening, even the calmest people are tempted to go apocalyptic. The Dow is down 2,000 points. China is catching up with the U.S. Global temperatures continue to climb. We face a health care crisis. Iran is getting nukes. Stars are falling from the sky and the moon is turning to blood, Jesus says. Calm down. Do not be afraid. So whatever our approach to these questions, if it's leading us to freaking out rather than faith, that can't be a good move. All of this may distract us and lead us to less focusing on loving God and loving others. It's interesting that in the passage in Acts 1, as it continues, the two angels show up and basically say, hey, why are you standing here? And when you get involved in intense calendarizing and dating game, um, putting dates and times and places on stuff, you're distracted from the things that we know are within in God's will for us. 
speculation about dates and events, eschatological debates, those can be helpful, particularly the latter, right? Our eschatology turns out to matter a lot in ways that are usually underestimated. But focusing on dates and events in particular is not going to help us with loving God and loving others or can easily distract from that. So we need to be really careful of that. John Stott says, we do not need a detailed forecast of future events, which has to be laboriously deciphered, but rather a vision of Jesus Christ to cheer the faint and encourage the weary. John's desire is not to satisfy our curiosity about the future, but to stimulate our faithfulness in the present. The last point to make here is revisiting something I said earlier, that Revelation, if you, if you do the calendarizing dating game stuff, you're in essence saying Revelation's written in code, which can only or at least best be understood today. The idea is that Revelation is not written for John's contemporary audience. It's only mostly or mostly written for us. And that, first of all, is not the way we read any other scripture. So it's possible, but at least recognize that would be unusual. Billy Graham claims, in, in contrast, undoubtedly most of John's first readers had little difficulty understanding what his symbols stood for and whether or not some of them were symbols at all or were to be taken literally. Really, we would expect his audience to have a better shot at understanding given genre. Or back to Eller, who's a preterist, here's what he says, any interpretation of Christ's words that patently would not have been a possibility for the original readers cannot be accurate. So he takes a very strong stand on this and says, look, that is just incoherent to imagine that the book is written for John's readers in a way that they would have had little or no value to them. It just is incoherent to a preterist like Eller. Do we really believe that nobody before us, nobody before our times had much of a chance of figuring out Revelation? Is Revelation only a giant puzzle that we're only able to solve 2,000 years after it's written? Again, from Eller, he says, if anyone is eavesdropping in this matter, it is we moderns and not our first century brothers and sisters. Revelation is not in the first place God's word to us, with the seven churches used merely as a vehicle for getting it to us. It was in the first God's word to them, and they, knowing John personally and being part of his historical and cultural milieu, had a better chance of understanding the book than we do. So this is not to condemn, condemn the futurist position, right? But it is to say it, it brings some difficulties, and those have to be handled. Uh, certain phrases have to be finessed, and there are certain temptations that go with futurism that are to be avoided. So with all this said, some of you are more concrete. Uh, or you want to think about things more simply. And I understand that. So let me close with what do we know? What do we know from the scriptures for sure? You don't, you don't need four views for this. You don't need uh, you know, some fancy hermeneutic. Here are the things that we know. Let's make sure we wrap up with that today. The first is that the time of the end will come. That's a given. I've already read Acts 111 or referred to it anyway. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. It's going to happen, right? That's not the question. The second is the time is soon. Again, we, we can debate what that means, right? Do we go with the, the preterist and see it as soon, literally? Uh, speaking of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD? Or do we go with the, uh, the finesse of of the futurist, for example, where soon is, um, we're not sure when, but when it happens, boy, it's going to be quick. 
Revelation begins and ends with telling us it's going to be soon. So we know that. We're not sure exactly what it means, but we do know that. The third is the time of the end will be a surprise. Many passages talk about that. The time of the end will not be a mystery. When it happens, we're all going to know about it. Many passages talk about that. The time of the end should find us prepared, be ready. I think that's the punchline I want to close with is that the purpose of the time of the end and God telling us about it seems to be primarily to be ready, to be ready for what comes. Again, Matthew 24 and 25 is classic here, right? Jesus is talking about the end and then he shifts into three parables and all of them are focused on being ready. Hanegraaff says we should be prepared as though Christ were coming this very moment and prepared as though he may not yet come for another millennium. It doesn't matter in a sense, right? We need to be ready, whatever. If we're taken out today, you know, we could all be raptured individually, right? If I die right after this recording, then I've been raptured, right? But the, the key thing is how did I live my life with the time that I was given? far more than when he will return and what it will be like. The question is, how can I be a faithful follower and ready for his return? So if you're looking for chapters to read after this week's discussion, I would definitely recommend chapters 24 and 25. (laughs) It'll show you the variance in interpretations, but it also will ground you in what our response should be, right? Independent of what this verse means or does this apply to this, that, or the other, the punchline is clearly being ready, right? Focused on obedience, focused on following a God who is in control. That's the focus and don't lose that. I'm going to close with 2 Peter 3, a long passage. So close your eyes if you're not driving perhaps and listen to this. 2 Peter 3, 3 through 14. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. That's it, right? It's supposed to change our theology, our perspective, and our practice. Some of you are coming to a study of Revelation, and you you don't really care about the details, and that's fine, right? Big picture, right? Are you inspired? Are you inspired to hope? Do you understand God on his throne? Do you understand the lamb who is worthy to open the scroll. Others of you are are detail-centered. Many of the people that come to a Revelation study are looking for more on the details. 
And you're, you may be missing the big picture. You may be missing what God has in store for you in the book of Revelation. Don't miss that. Lord, we thank you so much for the book of Revelation. We thank you for the beauty of it, uh, this many-faceted diamond that you put in our spot, but we're tempted to misuse it. We're tempted to uh, focus on details that distract us from who you are and what you want from us. Lord, keep us focused on the things that matter in this life and in our Bible study. Lord, thank you for all that you give us. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. These last two weeks have been uh, crucial for setting up Revelation 6 and following. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have questions, uh, want a copy of my notes on this, or anything else in terms of resources, uh, please get with me on Facebook. Please like uh, Pure Radio on Facebook. Uh, you can become my friend on Facebook. Happy to field your questions and comments there. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time on The Word Diet.